0: This is episode 70 with registered dietitian specializing in the treatment of eating disorders and emotional eating and 307 marathoner Anique Beso. Welcome to the Strength Running Podcast. This is your host, Jason Fitzgerald, and I can't believe we are now at episode 70 of the podcast. Wow, what a ride it has been since this whole project started back in 2016, and I have you to thank for that. Thank you for listening. Thank you for supporting our sponsors. Thank you for sharing the pod with your friends. And of course, thank you for all the reviews and ratings. They truly matter and really do make my day. I never thought that two years ago that this podcast would allow me to connect with so many different runners and other coaches and authors and scientists and researchers who all help us make better decisions with our training. It's really rewarding for me and I hope that our next 70 shows are just as helpful for you. Okay, so since I seem to be on a thank you tour, I also want to thank our sponsor, Inside Tracker, for making this show possible. If you don't know Inside Tracker, and I'd be quite surprised if you didn't, they allow any runner to test their body for hormonal or other types of deficiencies so that you can then correct them, which then allows you to train more effectively, recover more quickly, and race faster. Go on over to insidetracker.com and use code STRENGTHRUNNING no space, it's all one word, to save 10% on any test that they offer, including their affordable do-it-yourself and essentials kits if you're on a budget. Don't miss this opportunity to optimize your training and recovery to reach your potential. Their site is insidetracker.com, and the code, one more time, is STRENGTHRUNNING. That will save you 10% on any test they have. All right, moving on. Our guest today is Anique Besso, and we're talking about an important and sensitive topic, eating disorders in the running community. It's a reality that our sport favors those with thin frames, but I think that often drives runners to chase unrealistic body shapes or have an unhealthy relationship with food. And for myself, being on a cross country and track team at the college level for four years, I've experienced seeing some of my friends battle eating disorders. It's very real and It's something that I think we should talk about. So Anique is coming on to help us better understand this issue and give us some concrete steps to take if we're suffering or someone we know develops disordered eating. Anique got her bachelor's degree in nutrition and dietetics from St. Francis Xavier University and then earned a master's degree from McGill in dietetics. She's worked on an inpatient and outpatient pediatric unit at the Douglas Mental Health University Institute, a renowned psychiatric hospital in Canada. She's also received specialty training in evidence-based approaches such as cognitive behavioral therapy, family-based treatment, and dialectical behavioral therapy. This is a conversation we all should be having with ourselves, with our loved ones, and with those who might be at risk. I hope it's helpful for you. Please welcome Ms. Anique Besso. Anique, thank you for being here.
1: Thank you so much for having me, Jason.
0: Well, this is going to be a real treat. Uh, we're going to talk about an important topic today. I think before we dive in, though, I just want to give you a quick plug and shout out here on the podcast. You are quite the fast runner. You recently ran, I think, 307 in the marathon. You ran 2008 in a 5K earlier this year, and uh, it'd be remiss for me not to mention that when you ran that three oh seven at the Wisconsin Marathon, you came in second, so you're you're the second woman overall finisher. So that's really fast. Congratulations, and I'm just stoked to have a registered dietitian who's a really fast runner on the podcast today.
1: Thanks, Jason. I I do have to say I did. Um, I came third, uh, which is you know still a, still a great feat. Um, I do also have to say that Wisconsin Marathon was not the marathon we were hoping for this year. It was actually about um, 80 degrees um, during the marathon, so it was was a nice mental challenge. So I do feel very happy, thank you.
0: (laughs) Wow, 80 degrees is clearly suboptimal conditions for the marathon. Mm -hmm. Can I ask you, what is your marathon PR? If you ran 307 in 80 degree weather, I can only imagine what you're capable of in ideal conditions.
1: Yeah, so I actually only run two marathons. Um, My first marathon was um, the Toronto Waterfront Marathon in 2014, and I ran a 310. And then, unfortunately, I had some very bad luck skiing, and I tore my ACL, so that kind of put me out of marathon training for a few years. And um, Wisconsin, I was hoping for a sub-three hour, which was a very ambitious goal, but that was my, my PR, actually. So very happy with the 307.
0: <laughs> now, did you run in college?
1: I actually didn't run in college, no. I I was kind of intimidated to run in college for a team, but I did a master's at McGill, and I trained with a group that at the time was called McGill Olympic. Now it's called Atletis Ville Marie. And our coach, um, John LaFranco, he... He trains a lot of like post varsity athletes um, so I got a chance to run with a lot of really fast people and really get some some good good training so
0: That's awesome. Um so you clearly have to try for that sub 3 your next time around. Do you have a marathon coming up soon?
1: Yes, actually. So the sub 3 hopefully fingers crossed will be in December in Sacramento. I hear it's it's a good one to try to PR on too.
0: That's awesome. Well, well, congratulations on the 307. That's a really fast time in pretty poor conditions. And uh, best <laughs> yeah. of luck going after that sub three. That's really exciting. Yeah, let's dive into our topic for the day. Uh, you contacted me a few weeks ago to come on the podcast. And after a long debate that took about two and a half seconds, I said yes, because uh, I think the topic that you want to discuss, which is disordered eating, is really important. And, um, I think first, maybe I should issue a bit of a disclaimer. Uh, I think it would be helpful for our listeners to know my experience with the topic. I've never had an eating disorder, so I'm not really going to be able to talk about this from my own perspective, but I I did run cross-country indoor and outdoor track at the collegiate level, and at that level, eating disorders are unfortunately somewhat common. You know, I have friends who have eating disorders. Some of my teammates have suffered stress fractures while having an eating disorder, which I, I think, as many know, is an all too common result of simply not eating enough. And uh, it's becoming more clear that a lot of runners, both men and women, are dealing with body image issues, disordered eating, and the consequences that inevitably result. So, uh, you know, I'm really approaching this topic as someone who wants to further understand it and hopefully spread some helpful, non judgmental advice and resources to those who uh, might be suffering from. Disordered eating. So maybe we can start by you kind of explaining what disordered eating is and maybe if there is a difference between disordered eating and having an eating disorder?
1: Yeah, so I would say that, you know, disordered eating kind of presents itself on a spectrum, and there there is a difference between disordered eating and an eating disorder. Um, There are obviously different types of eating disorders, and those are really diagnosed um, with the DSM-5 by like, you know, a mental health specialist. Um, But, you know, disordered eating can also present itself in, in many forms, and these people also tend to suffer very, very much. So when one becomes so preoccupied with food and their body shape and weight that it other it affects other parts of their life so activities going out to eat with friends it creates a certain amount of distress if there's things that are unpredictable so I don't know you show up at practice and somebody brought donuts then you know there there's this like anxiety and it can really really affect that, that time. And you kind of want to avoid situations like that. So there's a very strong need for control. And a lot of times I would say the main thing with disordered eating is that the food choices are really seen as like good and bad, which would then affect your, your perception of yourself. So now I'm this terrible person that has no self-control because I went to practice and I told myself that I wouldn't have the donut and I just wasn't able to resist. And I had the donut anyways. I can't believe this. I really need to do better, try harder. And, you know, I, I can't believe how bad I've done. So there's, there's a lot, a lot of judgments about yourself as a person, your success, your self worth based on weight body shape or the foods that you eat per se.
0: So is an eating disorder a mental illness?
1: Yes, it is.
0: Okay, I learned something. That's I think that's important to know.
1: And I would say actually, an important point to clarify is that a lot of people think that eating disorders are, you know, we, I would say in like, society, we know eating disorders as anorexia, whereas there's a lot of different types of eating disorders. And a lot of people think that it's a superficial illness, that people want to look a certain way and eat certain foods. And what we know is that eating disorders, sure, like the the symptoms do come out in terms of body shape, weight and food choices, but it really is a disorder about control and emotion regulation. So I think that's an important point to clarify.
0: Now, speaking of emotions, is emotional eating different in any way than disordered eating?
1: Yeah, so I would say emotional eating can be a form of disordered eating. So you know, emotional eating, again, you can find it on a spectrum. Emotional eating versus binge eating, There, there is a very much like a difference. So emotional eating could be like, I had a really hard day at work and I deserve this bowl of ice cream. And then I eat the bowl of ice cream and I feel guilty about it. And you know, maybe I'll do something to manage that guilt, or I'll just kind of like move on in my day. And obviously, that can present itself like on a spectrum. Binge eating, however, is, you know, I I often say that people that suffer from binge eating, they have a lot of physical vulnerabilities, because they're people that tend to chronically restrict and diet. And so your body is pretty much trying to regulate that by sending you signals that will make you crave like high sugar, high fat foods. And so the binge would typically occur like later in the day. And in order to be, I guess, qualified as a binge, there has to be a perceived loss of control. So really, you feel like the decisions you're making with food are kind of outside of you. Um, And then the way I describe it is kind of like you snap out of it and you're like, oh my goodness I can't believe how much I ate Um, So binge eating you can eat like a very large amount of food, which would be an objective binge But then you could also eat like a pretty normal amount of food But have this perception of losing control, which would be considered a subjective binge
0: okay, so you know, I'm kind of putting on my coach's hat right now and thinking about, you know, the the particular type of athlete or groups of athletes that m- might be more susceptible to disordered eating. In, in your experience, are there particular types or groups of athletes that are more likely to have an eating disorder than others?
1: Yeah, I would say, and I obviously there's exceptions to every rule, but just based on um, the people I see, I would say that athletes that are more susceptible are there's a category of, you know, sports that aesthetics is is very much like appreciated and is important. So sports like ballet, bodybuilding or gymnastics, there is like pressure to look a certain way. And the way you look is is really a lot part of like whether you're chosen and the competition and the performance per se. And I would say the other category is sports where weight does affect performance. So wrestling, you know, there's a lot of trying to manage your weight to be in a certain weight category. And unfortunately running, we, we do know that weight can affect your speed, but I I really tread lightly in that area because I think that when coaches try to signal to their athletes that they can have control over their weight, which would then lead to higher performances, I think sometimes we're unaware how fast that can really spiral and actually negatively affect performance in my experience.
0: Yeah, you know, I've, you know, growing up on a team for eight years, three seasons a year, I was exposed to a lot of runners, men and women, who really wanted to have that runner's body. And they unfortunately went through some very unhealthy ways to try to get that. And then, you know, from the coaching side, I I have unfortunately had some coaches who made comments about runner's weight and Uh, how they look and how being lighter is generally associated with being faster. But you're absolutely right. I mean, it's kind of like this really tough balance to strike where you're right. You know, if you are at a lower weight, provided that it's a healthy weight for you, then you're going to race faster than if you were 10 or 20 pounds heavier. Now, the slippery slope there is that lighter does not necessarily mean better because if you pursue that goal without any regard to the consequences or how that's going to affect how you feel how you recover how you perform then all those things are going to start to suffer you are going to experience performance declines you are going to experience a very real and substantial uh, higher risk of injury because of you know calorie restriction um, and so you know when I'm thinking about this issue as a coach, I really want to make sure that I'm speaking to my athletes in such a way that is, is not going to lead them down this path. And, you know, maybe, Anik, you can give some examples from your experience and how a coach might be able to foster an environment that is not focused on exactly how you look or your weight or your body shape. How can us coaches deal with this issue a little bit more effectively?
1: Well, to me, what I often tell, you know, some of my clients that are runners is that a body does respond naturally to, to training. So, you know, in marathon training, your body would typically be a bit lighter just because of the mileage without you really having to control your intake in any way. I know from my experience with, um, John and the group at Atletes del he it's that You know, he never really talks about body shape or size and really talks about, like, our desire and our passion to run. So if you want to run better and perform more, of course you have to, like, prioritize that in your life and you need to fuel during your long runs. And, yeah, maybe when you come home, eating a bag of chips wouldn't be the best for recovery. But I think kind of sending the message that – you're, you're fueling your body so that you can recover and you can perform because you love to run and you work so hard to run that you might as well put all the chances on your side, but never really with a focus on like weight and body shape per se.
0: Right. That's super important. I remember one coach after summer base training for cross country Uh, asking another member of the team uh, if (laughs) he had actually done his summer training because he showed up and is admittedly a friend of mine who doesn't have the typical runner body. And, you know, after practice, when my friend would kind of, you know, would go elsewhere, the coach would ask us, hey, hey, is this is this runner drink a lot of beer? Is that why Mm -hmm. he doesn't look the way that most of the other guys look on the team? And we actually had to tell the coach, no, actually, he he doesn't drink beer much at all. He runs just as much as all of us do. And that's just the way that he's his body is shaped. And, you know, he, he goes on to like wipe the floor with most of the team when it comes to workouts and races. So, you know, clearly body yeah. shape isn't everything. Um, So, yeah, I thank you. Thank you for that kind of helpful uh way of thinking about talking about running without overly focusing on you know your body shape or your weight um now the other kind of uh, related question i have for you is now i have three kids and it's my job as a parent to ask i think if there's anything i can do to lower the risk that one of my children develops an eating disorder what can i do as a parent
1: so that's a that's a tough one jason um because we, we know from the literature that we don't know what the, the cause of eating disorders are per se. We know that genetically there, there could be biological vulnerabilities. And then there's environmental factors. So experiences in someone's life that could make them more susceptible to developing an eating disorder. But one thing I can say to parents is that. I see a lot in my practice, these parents that have had their own experience with like food and their bodies, and they, they really, they really mean well, but they start trying to, you know, restrict certain foods from the household. There's a lot of talk about like other people's weight. Oh, like Aunt Susan, she lost 20 pounds. Like she looks great. Or, oh my gosh, mom feels so fat. Uh, Mom looks so bad. And so I guess if I could give advice to parents, it would be, you know, let's let's not talk about weight and body shapes in the household in terms of looks. And let's instead talk about like, you know, taking care of your body and you look so healthy, you look glowing like, wow, wouldn't it be so nice to get outside to move to like be in the sun and get those endorphins instead of, well, you really need to move because if not. You'll gain weight. Um, a dietitian that I really like and use in my work with um, children and adolescents, her name is Ellen Satter, and one of her recommendations is that you know, as parents, we we are responsible for like the why, when, and where of feeding, but the child can really determine like how much and whether to eat or not. So. It's very different from, I know the way my parents raised me, we were told to finish everything that was on our plate. And if we didn't eat our vegetables, then we didn't get dessert. But that kind of makes dessert this very like novel and special thing. And oftentimes kids will then associate that with like happiness and joy. So then in adulthood, it's like, well, when I feel happy or when I feel sad, I automatically want dessert. So I guess to to kind of summarize that it would be to try to not like mention your your child's like weight or shape and trust that like you know the body the body really does have like a natural spot where it wants to sit, and if we don't control that, usually it does a really good job at you know taking care of itself and then also you know having the mentality that all foods fit and Sure, you can provide your, your kids with like, I don't know, like a balanced meal of like grains and protein and vegetable. But then if if your kid also wants like a bowl of ice cream after dinner, then kind of sending the message that, that that's okay.
0: Yeah, so that's what I'm struggling with right now because I have a five-year-old, <laughs> a three-year-old, and our nine-month-old is is not eating ice cream or cookies just yet. But, you know, three and five, they've been exposed to all this junk food over the last couple of years, um, even though we try to, you know, just limit their exposure to it uh, as much as we can because there's just other more beneficial foods to be eaten. But at the same time, you know, I want them to be able to go out for an ice cream in the summertime after dinner or something like that. How do we kind of keep junk food in its rightful place as an occasional treat that's okay to have. And there, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. But at the same time, recognizing that it is occasional, that it is something that should not replace healthy, real food. Um, and, and I guess what I struggle with in this issue here with kids is that, you know, th- this junk food should not be a treat, but it is. And how do we rectify that?
1: Yeah, it's a really hard one. And I, I do have to admit that it's, it's something I find difficult even in my practice, because parents, you don't want to like control too much, because then you can kind of push the child the other way. But you know, they're also children, so they don't necessarily have this ability to, to make the choices and understand what that means. Often, what I recommend is, you know, having having these foods available as snacks, so not the chips and the cookies that you know the kids will just go to having like i don't know fresh fruit and peanut butter and nuts and vegetables and hummus and all all those kinds of foods that are very nutrient dense but then you know going out for ice cream after dinner in the summer and having you know a good time as a family without mentioning oh this is a treat and this is a fun food it's just now we're doing this and so i think children you know, they, they crave these like sweet foods and because they're not really nutrient dense, they're not very filling. So if you come home and like eat four Oreos from school, you're going to be really hungry 30 minutes later and you're going to want four more Oreos. So, but if you come home and like what the snack is, is like, you know, an apple with peanut butter and, um, some nuts or a yogurt, Then it's kind of like, okay, well, now I'm full until dinner. And maybe after dinner, I can have like my two Oreos. So I always try to kind of recommend that it's like, well, let's get the nutrition in. So let's feed the kid like a really like nutritious meal. And then if you add the Oreo to that, it's kind of, it's not really a big deal, but that's not where they're getting their primary source of nutrition.
0: I like that. That's a good compromise, and one that I think we, my wife and I, do a decent job at. But there's always room for improvement, and I think we're going to keep working at it. Let, let's get back to runners and eating disorders, because um, you know clearly it, it's not productive for a runner to be performance minded, for someone who wants to get faster or run longer, to you know have this kind of an illness. So what are some of the physical effects of disordered eating? And then how does that affect your running performance?
1: Yeah, so I mean, unfortunately, I think there there are a lot of physical effects that can't necessarily be seen. So, you know, we often think of disordered eating as presenting itself as like a low body weight, but You know, a lot of the effects that can happen can happen in a normal sized body as well. So often a big motivator for the runners I work with is that I'm like, if you're running, I don't know, let's say six miles and you're not fueling and you're restricting your energy intake, your body is going to use the energy you're giving it to protect its vital organs. So that's the heart, um, the brain. And, you know, kidneys, liver, all that jazz. But mainly the heart is going to be always the one that will trump everyone else. So if you're, you know, running your six miles and you've broken down a bit of muscle tissue, you're, your body's not going to use that energy to rebuild that tissue. So you're really just harming yourself a bit more. So from that aspect, one thing that where it really affects runners is um, a decrease in, in endurance, just I, I know so many runners, um, that I've worked with that train for marathons and they just bonk, you know, at mile 15, mile 20, but just because they, part of their eating disorder is not taking in any fuel because there's, there's such a fear around that, but they're very determined, you know, strong athletes, but because of this disorder, their performances are really suboptimal. Um, so there's that. Um, one very, very dangerous thing can be the heart. So, you know, as runners, people are very, very proud of having lower heart rates, but it's also a symptom in eating disorders. Um, so, you know, it's it's kind of like, well, you have a low heart rate, but is that because you're not fueling it adequately or because you're in really, really good shape? Um, so that can be dangerous. Also, if there's purging behaviors. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with that, Jason, but it means that there is vomiting or laxative abuse as part of the eating disorder that can really dysregulate um, electrolytes in the body. And your heart uses electrolytes to beat. So people can have irregular heartbeats. And unfortunately, in a marathon, obviously your heart is, is working hard in any race, any distance. So That makes me very nervous with some clients, and I will often recommend um, to not run the race. So um, that can also be one. And then, you know, I don't know how much we want to go into this, but a big one that's very common in the running field is amenorrhea, so a loss of a period. Some adolescents actually don't even get their period, so it can be delayed. And that can have a lot of effects, obviously, on bone density, which could lead to osteopenia. And then that can lead later on to osteoporosis. So we can see women that are, you know, 50 or 40, who have the bone density of an 80 year old woman. And as you mentioned earlier in the podcast, you know, stress fractures, injuries, these, these are things that I think runners just take as part of, being a long-distance runner, and it's really a common misconception that because you run a lot, it's okay to not have a period. It's actually extremely dangerous, and if you're fueling adequately, you you should be getting a regular period, and in adolescence, what's really scary is that it can also affect their growth, so we can see a lot of um, stunting with their height, and because that's usually... The time where they're growing, that's it's really important that we start refeeding um, right away so that they can start resuming the the growth again. And usually, once you reach kind of an, an adequate body weight, the the menses would resume automatically. Um, so I guess as like a coach, let's say, how you would see warning signs is that. A lot of fatigue, probably decreased performance in in workouts. People's moods are also really shift. You can see that they're more irritable. Um, isolation as well. So a lot of people suffering from eating disorders will, you know, kind of make excuses to skip out on social events around food. And a big one is is obviously the the injury. And, you know, injuries happen in running, but I think it's the chronic injury that then raises a red flag of like, OK, well, something's going on um, that your body is is not able to recover. Sometimes it happens in people that, you know, they're not even deliberately trying to restrict. Um, and then, you know, we send them for blood work and it's like, oh, you have low iron or low B12, low calcium. And, you know, just looking at their intakes, there's tweaks that you can make so that they're really getting enough energy and enough of those nutrients to sustain um, the level that they're running at.
0: Wow, there's a lot in there. Uh, Thank you so much for (laughs) kind of going through everything and, and really laying it all out there. I think what we're learning here is that an eating disorder really is this full-body illness that affects everything from your heart to your lungs to uh, your, your potentially, your muscles and bones, and that's really serious. And, you know, uh, we had on the podcast a while back Tina Muir, uh, I believe it was episode 31, uh, talking about how she quit running so that she could finally get her period again and you know, thankfully, she ended up uh, getting her period. She got. She wanted to start a family. She ended up having uh, a baby girl. And I just had her on again to help me with some coaching Q and A. And she was talking about how oh, the baby's sleeping right now, and it's just great to hear that. And kind of her journey was a successful one. And uh, you know, I, I think that's uh, it's just really inspiring to hear. And. To know that, you know, there is kind of a way out for runners who might be suffering from that. And then I think it's really interesting hearing you talk about, you know, the the energy availability that runners have and how this is all tied to the calories that you're consuming, the quality and quantity of those calories and how if you are trying to run a lot or run hard, in other words, to train while having an eating disorder, um, you know, the the Calories that that you are consuming are really going to be used to protect your heart and your brain, and uh, the training stress is not going to be addressed as much as it should be. Uh, I think it's really interesting too that uh, a while back we profiled uh, nine elite runners and their their favorite injury prevention strategies, and one of the runners, uh, David Roche, he's a he's a, a phenomenal trail runner here in Colorado. And his advice was to eat a lot. And I was like, how does this, what does this have to do with injury prevention? And his answer is that it's all about energy availability. If you want to be able to perform really well and give your body the necessary energy and materials to repair itself after a long run or a hard workout, or simply uh, refuel and recover appropriately, then you need all that energy and materials, which is just another way of saying calories. Uh, So I think, I I think that's just so helpful. And it really drives home the point that this is, you know, uh, kind of a, a global entire body illness that is going to affect how your body uh, uh, works and, and how it, its relationship with running is, is inevitably going to suffer. Um, maybe this is a good point to ask, you know, okay, if someone does have an eating disorder, if someone does have an unhealthy relationship with food, what's their first step? What should they do?
1: Yeah. So it's hard, right? Because it kind of depends on the severity, but you know, what all the evidence would show is that the first step is to eat more, <laughs> um, which sucks, obviously, because that's the hardest part of the eating disorder. But so the the calorie restriction, like you just stated, it has such a such a detrimental effect on the body, but it also really, really affects the brain. So from a cognitive standpoint, you know, what we see is that People with that are, you know, as they progress in their eating disorder and their restriction, they become more and more rigid and things become scarier and scarier. So the, the way that you would treat eating disorders is always through like a multidisciplinary approach, obviously through therapy and a medical doctor, sometimes a psychiatrist and then a dietitian. But what we see is that therapy is actually not that effective if you're not, fueling adequately. So if you're still malnourished, it's really hard for you to process like, okay, well I had this emotion and that's what led to this. So the first line of treatment would be to to eat more. And so if somebody's listening today and is like, well how do I do that? That almost seems like so vague and impossible. Often where I start with clients is that, you know, we kind of go through, well what are you eating in a day right now? And where would be the safest spot to add? So a really easy one is to add, well, really easy. I say that with all reserve. Um, If you're not eating snacks to add snacks in your day, and that can be with safe food. So whatever feels the most comfortable, you don't have to go out and eat an ice cream right now. Um, Some people say, you know, I'm not ready to add snacks. That's just way too overwhelming. And then I have so many more times that I have to confront this relationship with food. And so I say, okay, well, are you ready to just increase portions um, at meals? So if you're right now, like measuring your rice, could you, you know, times that by one and a half and have that quantity of rice, and then have whatever else you're having just in a bit larger quantity. So I would always recommend to obviously seek professional help. But if you're not there yet, just trying to see you know, how you can slowly increase your intake. Um, An app that I use with clients that I find super helpful is called Recovery Record. And it's this app where you can log your intake. It's not a calorie counter in any way. um, But what's really cool about it is that it will send you reminders like, hey, have you had your snack? Like, maybe you should log it. And then in the app, it asks you like, your hunger, and it goes through like a slew of emotions. Like, are you feeling sad, anxious, um, stressed, happy? Um, Who did you eat with? What did you eat? And like, do you have any comments? And so for some people, some people hate it, because they're like, I really don't want to log this. But other people find it really helpful, because you can start seeing a trend of like, oh, I was stressed, and that made it harder to eat. And, you know, just kind of looking at how your relationship with food really isn't always about the food and more about like the way you're managing your emotions.
0: Now I'm sorry. The name of the app is
1: recovery record
0: recovery record. Great. I'll put a link to that in the show notes for anyone listening to this. We can get that on the blog post on the strength running website. I think that's great. Um, Yeah, I think, I mean, look, any resources are going to be really helpful for folks battling this this disorder because you know this just reminds me of alcoholism and if you're an alcoholic it's easy to take all the alcohol out of your house and not be tempted anymore by that but you can't do that with an eating disorder you have to constantly be around the very thing that you have trouble consuming at kind of a, at a healthy level and and have a good relationship with and that to me just is such an extraordinary obstacle and hurdle to get over, and and I don't have any good answers on how to deal with that. You know, it's like someone trying to quit smoking who's required to have four cigarettes per day and not any more. You know, that it just makes it sound so exceedingly difficult to to succeed. Um, and so your advice was to get uh, both like really practical uh, advice when it comes to just eating more. And then seeking some professional help. Do you think a psychiatrist is a good first stop for uh, a runner or an athlete or, or for that matter, anybody who might be suffering from an eating disorder?
1: So a psychiatrist is actually a doctor that would basically prescribe medication. Um, so I think they can definitely be part of the treatment team. But I would suggest um, a psychologist and I would also suggest a dietitian. um what I've heard is that it's very, very hard to find a dietitian that specializes in eating disorders and you know takes on like the the psychological approach. So often, you know, like clinics that specialize in treating eating disorders will have a dietitian on staff who is really uh, specialized. And of course, there's there's room for the psychiatrist. Um, but what we often see is that, you know, the behaviors, the anxiety, and a lot of the comorbidities that will present with the eating disorder, some of them will subside once you refeed. So that's kind of great news, because oftentimes, our clients won't actually need medication. Some do, of course, I always say, you know, medication is kind of like, if you have a broken leg, you could technically walk on it, and perhaps it will heal. It's just, might be a lot more painful and a lot longer. So you might as well, you know, take the crutches, allow it to heal. And then that doesn't mean that you you need them for life, right?
0: I see. I see. Now, should we be looking for psychologists that have uh, certifications in uh, some other areas? Because I know you yourself have a bunch of different other trainings in addition to you know, your formal education, you have cognitive behavioral therapy, family-based treatment, dialectical behavioral therapy, uh, certifications. Are, are any of those helpful in this area?
1: Yeah. So I would say that probably the main lines of treatment right now in adolescence, um, the evidence-based treatment right now is family-based treatment, um, And then, you know, in in adults, what we would see is cognitive behavioral therapy. But for for binge eating, there's a lot more evidence that is showing that for binge eating and bulimia, um, DBT, so dialectical behavioral therapy, is is actually uh, very helpful as well. So obviously, like, those are the areas that I'm trained in, and those are the areas that I know Um, to be evidence-based treatment for these eating disorders. There's other ones, like there's um, ACT, which would be acceptance and commitment therapy. That also um, is one that is used for the treatment of eating disorders. And then, of course, you have intuitive eating that could be used for disordered eating. And I think that's, that's probably it for the ones I can think about right now.
0: I think the two that stood out were cognitive behavioral therapy and family-based treatment. Can you give us the Cliff's Notes versions of what those two entail?
1: Yeah. So family-based treatment is actually a really tough one. Um, so family-based treatment, actually, the the dietitian, you're basically empowering parents to refeed their child. Um, so it's a very, very different approach where you're not a professional telling. Your clients what to do. You're just kind of helping them come up with ideas and empowering them to believe that, you know, they can refeed their child and save their life and they can become experts with the eating disorder um, and they that they know how to feed their child. So that's family-based treatment. Um, and cognitive behavioral therapy is It's very much trying to identify ineffective thought patterns and trying to check facts around them and trying to challenge them and redevelop kind of more effective ones. So um, an example could be, oh, my gosh, I ate this granola bar when I planned not to. I'm such a disgusting human. Um, No one will ever love me. I, I don't deserve to. You know, be a part of this family. And so what the therapist would then do is kind of deconstruct that belief and try to look for facts that would challenge it and maybe try to develop a bit more flexibility and saying, okay, well, what are you feeling when you eat the granola bar? And are there facts that actually support that you're a disgusting human and that you don't deserve to be a part of this family?
0: Sounds like CBT could be used to really address any negative thought pattern that one might have in, in their life. And and particularly, you know, again, I'm putting on my coach's hat here and thinking, my goodness, for sports psychology issues, this could also be really helpful. Is, is CBT used for really a wide variety of, of other issues as well?
1: Yeah. CBT is used for, for a lot of, um, different diagnoses. Um, and something that could be cool if you want me to send over to you is, um, just automatic cognitive distortions that I think probably all of us engage in, but you know, it's, it's a list. Um, so you could maybe put it in the show notes, but sometimes when I show that to clients, they're like, Oh, I have all of these. (laughs) Um, and I think we're all kind of, we all have these at, at one point in time, but it's kind of nice to see, Oh, these are actually like distortions. It's not necessarily factual.
0: I love that. Yes, I would very much appreciate uh, any extra information or resources about really anything that we discussed here, because I'm going to put that into a a big list of things and link all that up so that, you know, if you're listening to this podcast uh, on the blog, we're going to have a lot of those links available to you so that, you know, if if you actually do want to follow up on anything like that, it'll be right there for you. Um, Anik, thank you so much for lending your expertise and talking with me about this, you know, really complex and sensitive issue. Uh, I think it it deserves a little bit more attention here in the running community. Uh, I know I'm admittedly not the uh, the best person to speak on it. I'm not an expert. I don't have any experience on it. Uh, And maybe with that said, I my last question for you can be, you know, is there anything that I'm missing? Uh, Have we not discussed an important component to this topic that uh, you think would be valuable to talk about?
1: I guess one thing I would just want to say is that a lot of people tend to invalidate their struggle based on their, their weight. And I want to say that, you know, weight really isn't, um, isn't representative of how much someone is struggling. So if you, you know, if you do feel like food takes up a large part of your life, and, you know, you are really preoccupied with, your body shape and your weight, um, no matter what weight you're at, then it, it might be helpful to, you know, seek help or even do a bit more research on that because you're you're really not alone. And I think sometimes people tend to have a lot of judgments about themselves. And, you know, in sports teams, this whole idea of looking a certain way and so and so was so lucky because she was born with like a six pack and I, all I want is that because people won't consider me a real runner if i if I don't have that. Um, you know that can very much affect someone and their their perception of like fitting into a team. so sometimes it's kind of nice to to reach out to either professionals or people that you know are close to you to, to challenge those thoughts and maybe get a bit more support and, and to tell you like, really this, this is something that affects a large, a large percentage of the population. And there really is great resources um, to help you. So that's, that's a big one that I, I wanted to say.
0: Well, thank you for saying that. That was that was again very helpful, um, and and I just want to thank you again for for speaking to this issue uh, in such a an approachable way, in a way that really condensed a lot of information and a lot of helpful resources into a short period of time. Um, This is, this is one of those podcast episodes you want to listen to on half speed instead, (laughs) instead of uh, at a faster speed. (laughs) Yeah. Um, But Anik, where can folks learn more about you connect with you follow your work? Uh, Are you online anywhere?
1: Well, I'm on. So I work at Mind Body Health, so um, I can send you the link for that website. Unfortunately, I don't really have anything else online professionally, which I know is is shocking in this day and age. Um, but you know, I can I can also provide you with an email address that you know folks can. I'm happy if you you'd like to reach out to me and. Um, happy to answer some questions. But besides that, I don't have anything social media wise for for my
0: work. (laughs) Uh, That's fine. Well, how about this? I'll link up your email address if you're so bold as to do that. And uh, I'll do that in the blog post surrounding this podcast. And if folks do have specific questions for you, if they want to reach out, then uh, I think it's really great that you're offering that uh, as a resource for them. So thank you very much.
1: Cool. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me on your podcast, Jason. I I listen to you weekly. I really look forward to um, your episodes. I find them really, really informative and varied. So it really does feel like an honor to, to be on your show. It feels kind of like being a superstar in a way.
0: <laughs> well, the only reason my podcast is so informative is because I have on amazing guests such as yourself to help our listenership. Thank you. <laughs> Hey, it's Jason. And before you leave for today, I want to thank Anique one more time for coming on the show and helping us with this difficult topic. I hope you'll forward this podcast to someone who might find it to be a valuable resource. Finally, are you a runner that wants to get better, to race faster, get injured less frequently, run further? Of course you are. Those are Questions designed to make you say yes. <laughs> and if so, of course, you're going to love our sponsor, Inside Tracker. They test over 40 different biomarkers like stress hormones to determine if you're training too hard, too little, or have any kind of physiological weaknesses that can be remedied by either diet, exercise, or lifestyle changes. So, in other words, you learn about problems that then have actionable solutions. Inside Tracker uses blood testing to get this information, and then they communicate what you can do to lift or lower your results into an optimal range that's unique to you. For any runner who wants every advantage to see what they're truly capable of achieving, I highly recommend Inside Tracker. And I'm not just a spokesman, I'm also a customer. Sorry, I've, I, I just love saying that. <laughs> All right, let's finish up and just say that they do great work and I had an awesome experience myself with them last fall getting my own test and the results were really illuminating for me. So head on over to insidetracker.com to check out all of their testing kits and don't forget code STRENGTHRUNNING will save you 10% on any test they have available including their affordable options. Thank you for being here. Thank you for listening. Until next time.